Hey guys, welcome to my podcast. My name is William Walker, and this show is all about trailblazers and how these leaders and visionaries broke new ground, challenged conventional thinking, and inspired others to follow in their footsteps. After all, Jesus was a trailblazer. So how do we, as men, live a life as trailblazers and become the leaders we are called to be? Board on this computer. Good to go. All right, just make sure everything here is turned off. <clears throat> la, 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 la. Just, yeah, I'm just making sure my, my, nothing's going to disturb me. Well, any more than I'm already disturbed. You know what it's like. Well, yeah, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> All right. I got to raise my computer up. I feel like people are like looking. Yeah. Yeah. When, when Rebecca texts and said, oh, she's going to be an extra hour or so. But, you know, I'm just going to go back upstairs and I, I haven't really properly tried these microphones yet. So. Oh, that's much better, isn't it? Yeah, she is. It's good height. Mm. Okay, cool. Less kind of looking up your nose. Mm, well, you know, I do have a pretty nose. Well, that's good to see. Keep it trimmed. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> Let's do it. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Trailblazer Podcast. I'm your host, William Walker. And on the Trailblazer Podcast, what we do is we tell the stories of men who have decided to live and lead their lives in just a different way, making small differences in the world that they have influence over. Um, today, we have a special guest and good friend of mine, John O'Brake. John O'Brake is a longtime um, executive business coach. He's been in this industry for over 20 years, as well as has a extensive background in marketing and other amazing stories of just life and from all over the world from where he's lived. Um, so today I'd like to just welcome to the show, Jono. Jono, welcome, man. Got him, Matt. Hey, Don. Good, brother. Man, you just, you sound all stiff all of a sudden and, and just like, what's going on there? I just, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> warm me up, man. <laughs> warm me up, man. I just give you a little rub on the head. Just boop. There you go. But uh, hey, man, I just once again, I just want to say welcome to the show. I've been wanting to get you on and, and kind of tell your story. Um, I know who you are from our relationship, you know, as friends and as business partners um, and uh, and just how you have led your family and how you live your life and, and really how you pursue your passions in 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 the business world and really, truly believing that the uh, that your calling is to build a marketplace church. Right. Yeah. And and yeah, with 100%. work along with business leaders. And so I'm excited to kind of tell some of that story and, and just kind of everything you got going on um when we when we get into this today. All right. Yeah. You, you ready? <laughs> yeah, mate. Go for it. Awesome. Well, cool. You know, everything that I whenever I do a podcast with somebody, one of the first things I like to do is really kind of make sure that our guests, our listeners, they get a chance to to kind of know the story of where you came from, where it all started. Um, so why don't we just start there, man? Like, where'd you grow up? What was it like growing up? Were you, you know, what's your mom and dad do? I mean, can't you tell I grew up in America? I did, yeah. man. I, I knew that. The accent did not <laughs> well, give I did. I did grow up in America, but that was only the last eight years. Um, but um, yeah, look, obviously, it, 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 no, well, actually, I mean, if I, in, in America, it could be England, South Africa, New Zealand, or Australia, but I am Australian. And um, so we moved to the US uh, eight years ago, grew up. On the east coast of Australia, like most Australians, um, grew up in a city, you know, quarter of a million people, industrial city. My dad was small business owner. He was a pharmacist. Mum was a, you know, well, mum was a stay-at-home mum because that was kind of normal back then. And 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 she ended up being a school teacher. 
Um, and I think she was a school teacher before we were born. Um, I'm the middle of two boys where we're all about 18 months apart. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, uh, you know, I had, the, had kind of the fortune of a great education, you know, in Australia, I, I, um, uh, was a violinist. I probably still am, I guess, but not, not as good now as I was back then. Um, and, uh, so I had the fortune of going to one of the top music schools in Australia to do high school and, and then went to the Australian National University, uh, and Canberra University where I did an undergrad in political science and sociology and a, um, and a grad in marketing and Ooh. probably just in my first, you know, probably in my first degree was when I, you know, started to really get this, this kind of strong sense of calling, uh, I would say, you know, real faith awakening, uh, for me. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that's where, you know, this whole sense of, you know, pastor in the marketplace, you know, building the church, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of that initial conversation was, you know, was this sense of God saying, I'm calling you to build the church, but it won't look like the church does today. And that was back mm. in 1991. <laughs> we we don't have to age. We don't have to definitely, we, we share uh, how old we good. are. So no, it's, I mean, it's all good, man. Yeah. So we're in our fifties and enjoying the journey, right? <laughs> what was it like growing up? I mean, for you growing up, I mean, were you obviously you were a violinist, you're a musician, but uh, you know, my, you said your dad was an entrepreneur. What, 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 did, what? Well, dad wasn't really an entrepreneur. He was a pharmacist. I mean, okay, you know, back in the day, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's only more recently we've really talked about the business experiences, but I always worked for my dad. Um, so I'd work in the pharmacy selling stuff, pharmacies. In Australia, a more independent, you know, drug stores as you'd call them here. Uh, the more independents, uh, you don't have the big box, the big chains like you do here. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it was his business. You know, he owned it outright. Um, he ran it for forty years until he retired and sold it to somebody else. And uh, and they had this section where you know you did all the maybe you used to go and take your your film in to be you know to be printed mm -hmm. up. And you'd have to wait a week to see if your photos actually <laughs> turned out. And uh, and then they also sold kind of cheap um, Walkmans and stereos and cameras and, and this whole range of stuff. And so, um, gosh, from an early teen, I would spend every summer, most holidays, working in the pharmacy, uh, selling stuff to people. Dad would always, Dad would always joke about how I could sell ice to Eskimos, you know, and... Uh, I don't know if that's even correct, but there we go. I just said it. <laughs> okay. And so, I'm good with it. yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was just that, that, so that was probably where my entrepreneurial upbringing came up because I just loved inter interacting with people. I was learning Italian. Uh, so I, I actually did public school uh, for what we call primary school up to sixth grade. And then seventh grade, I was at the local high school hmm. um, in Australia. High school starts in seventh grade. And, uh, and then I went off to this private school in, in eighth grade because I was a, you know, I was a good violinist and uh, showed a lot of promise. And so had this opportunity just to be amongst some of the most incredible people. Um, some of these guys are still my mates today, you know, that, uh, and they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, those kinds of schools, these are, these are the elite private schools in Australia. They kind of breed the who's who and then guys like me. So <laughs> you're just the ones that slip through the cracks, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's so okay. we lived we lived in a city called Wollongong, um, and you know about an hour and a half south of Sydney. We lived in a suburb right on the edge of the city. So it was a it was a very beautiful city. Twenty two beaches, 
Um, it was an industrial city, but it was also right next to a range of mountains. And we actually lived up on the side of the mountain, but we were only seven minutes drive from the beach. So it just gives you some idea of how wide the city was. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, our weekends were very much just going up in, we call it the bush, just going up into the bush and forging trails and climbing mountains. We had a mountain right next to us. You could climb up the top. There was a like a shop up the top where we could get ice creams and stuff like that. And um, and then, you know, the other other direction, we'd get on our bikes and just, you know, in the day when the bikes were just the, you know, you'd, your back brake was your your pedals and mm -hmm. uh, you just freewheel it down to the beach and and then you'd ring dad and say hey can you come and pick us up because the climb up the mountain was too hard <laughs> but, good, um, but yeah. it was just i mean it was a it was a great upbringing you know i like mm -hmm. you know you grew up with a with a lot of mates you grew up in a local community um as i said you know and and, and just worked i actually started working with dad probably when i was about five or six mm. but you know just just doing stuff like stocking shelves and you know, probably eating chocolates and things like that in his store. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so what's that so, like? I mean, I know a lot of people, they say working for your family is is a little more difficult or can be at times. I mean, what was it like working for your dad? I mean, what were some of the, the pivotal lessons learned that, that you kind of took that, 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 that started shaping you in that young age that, that you even remember um, back now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think about that today. Like I look at, I mean, even in, at a young age, I really saw, you know, he probably had about eight or 10 uh, we call them shop girls because bottom line is he was the only guy in there that are all, all shop girls. And and so we were in a very ethnic heavy area, you know, a very industrial ethnic part of Wollongong. And so he might have six girls working at once and they all spoke different European languages. Oh, and wow. um, and so, I, as I said, and, and in early high school, I actually learned Italian so I could communicate with them as well. And um, and so um, I loved he, he was he was very, very fair. I mean, even today, there are still people like you might reach out to me on Facebook and go, are you Phil Brake's son? Mm. And uh, I worked with Phil, you know, in, in 1979 or 1980 or whatever. And um, and so um, I don't think dad ever assumed that, you know, we could just walk in and take over the business or just, you know, just command a, a position or a job. You know, we had to work for it. Mm -hmm. um i remember one morning he, he walked in and i i was in my teenage years and i didn't feel like getting out of bed and he's like i need you out of bed and i, I said uh i want to stay at home today he goes if you stay at home today you won't have a job tomorrow you know like he was very you know didn't didn't give me any leeway because i was you know the owner's mm -hmm. you know, the owner's son so to speak so he was very very fair um I, you know everybody knew phil like everyone liked Phil. Like even when I did my learner's permit in Australia, I did my driving test. You know, the guy's looking at my paperwork. He goes, Jonathan Brake, Jonathan Brake. He goes, are you Philip Brake's son? <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, oh, Phil, what an amazing guy. And so when you meet my dad, you know, he's, you know, he, he doesn't know a stranger. And, nice. um, and still at 86 years of age, he's still the same. And so, yeah, so he was very fair. I think fairness would probably be the thing that defines him the most. Um, but, but just a good guy, like a good bloke, um, he used to get really annoyed when, for example, we'd ask for money or ask for help with something. He goes, of course, you know, I've got to do the same for your brothers. Right. So it cost me three times as much. He wouldn't just like, I, I can give you a thousand dollars or help you out with a thousand dollars. You know? And so there was just this, this whole way he saw life. He was, he was generous to a fault. Um, but, but he was good to his people. He was mm -hmm. really genuinely good to his people. So he was a good boss. He was a good guy. Um, 
and you never heard of anyone that that disliked him. Yeah. What about your mom? Your mom? Yeah, mom was a mom was a, a different egg. Um, she she was probably, I mean, again, you know, they were very happy happily married. Were they? They are still married. I mean, funnily enough, they're getting close to sixty years now. And, um, and so mum, mum, of course, now is, is, um, you know, she, she has dementia and she's in, in special care, but, um, but mum was, mum was a little bit more intense. Uh, mum went through her own kind of traumatic stuff as, you know, probably in her late twenties, losing her father when he was extremely young and never really recovering from that. But, but, you know, mum supported us in everything we did. She would, she stayed at home. Obviously that was a choice she made. We knew of, you know, that, that we were the first latchkey generation, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the kids who came home when the parents weren't home. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, you know, my mom was always at home. She didn't go back to work until, well, we were all at boarding school. And so, um, so, you know, she was, she was, she was great, you know, like, um, it's funny, you know, you say, and not having my own kids, I think you say you, you have the, the the toughest time with the parent that you're most like and Mm. i think back then i was probably most like my mum, and you know a little bit more intense a little bit more high you know high energy and all that sort of thing um and a lot less laid back than than maybe i am now but um but mum was always there to support us you know she was good at helping us with homework and stuff like that um yeah, you, you know, I mean, I used to love it when mum would come and do, we, we call it tuck shop. So they, in Australian schools, they have canteens rather than a like a, a um, what do you call them here? A, like a lunchroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just, you you would, most kids would bring their own lunch to school, but you could order from the tuck shops. So it's like a, like a kiosk, like a takeaway space. Yeah. And, uh, and so mothers would volunteer in the, in the tuck shop. And so I used to love it when mum did that because you'd always get always get my meat pie, <laughs> which, you know, otherwise it was a sandwich, you know, every other day of the week. And uh, and so she continued to do that. Even when I moved to Sydney to go to boarding school, um, she came up and she she did stuff in the school. She worked in the clothing pool. She worked in the tuck shop, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, she, she loved good, being man. involved in all that stuff. Yeah. All right. So as you, so here you are, I mean, obviously that's, up to not you said right through primary school and then you went to high school you play yeah. a lot of sports did you do a lot of that or yeah yeah i did I, i've never put myself out as the most sporty person I, I grew up with kind of a hand-eye kind of disconnect um so some surgery i had done when i was 18 months old i struggled to judge the speed of of things like balls coming towards me so they were often hitting me in the face <laughs> so i got sick of that um, so I tended to choose sports that didn't vol- involve a lot of hand-eye coordination. So I didn't play mm-hmm. cricket, didn't play tennis. Uh, I did play rugby, um, but they would never put in the forwards. Uh, sorry, in the backs, because that involves speed and agility. I was more the hit man. And, um, and so played tight head prop in, in the rugby, which I loved, uh, only for a little while. And then I coached. Um, but, you know, water was my favorite place. Swimming. Mm-hmm. I, I swam. I swam competitively life-saving, did water polo, um, you know, all that sort of thing. So really enjoyed that space. Um, so yeah, very much. Um, that's intense. That's, that's hard stuff. Like that is a lot of yeah. cardiovascular. That is a lot yeah. of just not, yeah. I mean, especially water polo. I mean, I've, I've seen yeah. those guys and it's just like, 
That's a whole so, other so level our water of polo. Being. So it was funny because we were doing life saving at the school. The school had a pool and all that sort of thing. We were doing life saving at the pool because um, you know that's kind of normal at about 13, 14 years of age. Mm. You, you, if, you, if you're a good swimmer, you get what's called your bronze medallion, which then qualifies you to be a lifeguard, um, either at a pool or at the beach. And uh, and so we were doing that, and then this guy, uh, Mr. Greenbank, one of the teacher, the history teacher at the school, he kind of pulled a few of us out, and he said. He said, uh, I want to I want to set up a water polo team. And we was like, all right. <laughs> I had no idea what water polo was. Uh, he said, he said, it's hard. And so he turned out he was actually, he played water polo for Australia. And mm. um, so as you know, Australians are very competitive in the water uh, for, for a small country. And so he played water polo for Australia. And so he took us along to a couple of Australian water polo training sessions. And it was kind of, it was almost like, you know, in Cool Runnings where they're showing the, they're showing the bobsled at the beginning mm-hmm. and, uh, and then they turn the lights on and everyone's left. <laughs> it's like, we're there at the train just going, yeah, let's just all back out of here very quietly and not talk to the instructor <laughs> ever again. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, look, it was, it was one of those journeys and, and it was funny because <laughs> there were eight schools in now kind of, you know, um, it's called the greater public schools in, in Sydney. Um, these these were kind of these big traditional English style private schools, and um, and so there were eight schools in that competition, very elite sport competition, and uh, and so he started this little water polo troop, which grew out to be there was about twelve of us in the end. Um, similar to basketball, you play I think five five or six mm-hmm. in the water at once, and um, and then that went on today today it's it's now a full-blown sport with they've got teams from all age groups right across all the schools some fantastic memories of playing water polo in a in a shark protection cage in sydney harbour um you know so the shark protection cage was to protect you not the sharks the sharks were in the harbour and it was this this huge basically it was the size of a swimming pool it was a cage and um and that's we would play water polo in there because one of the schools didn't have a big enough pool and um you know just stuff like that and that's how it all started today they've all built pools that uh, are for professional water polo but um it was that was that was cool what I, was I that like it. i mean i mean you said you, you guys walked in and saw these guys training and stuff like that i mean what, what's going through your minds at that point you know, you're like holy oh you it was an absolute insanity i mean yeah yeah we were we were 14 15 super fit you know really strong and we was like oh we can do this so just just to give you an idea, you understand you know what treading water is, mm-hmm. um, you know basically using your legs and your arms to to kind of stay afloat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were using just their legs, and they had a bucket of water above their head, and they had to have from basically the the lower middle of their chest out of the water, and they were doing it for three to five minutes at a time. So Jeez. I mean, you're talking about unbelievable like leg strength that could dislocate a hip, kind mm-hmm. of deal, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we, that's the sort of stuff we're watching going, ah, yeah, we can do that easily. I think we lasted like three seconds. <laughs> you sink it straight to the bottom of the pool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your buck, the bucket did. <laughs> so what was that like? I mean, for once you guys decided, hey, you know, we are going to get in, we are going to do this. What was that like for you? I mean, what was that? It was, what was that process of, of becoming a, a water polo player? Yeah. Was- yeah. So, I mean, obviously swimming was a big piece of that. So we were all competent swimmers already i was already swimming competitively at the school so um and and so you had to be out of you had to be out of sprint swim in the first sort of 15 10 or 15 seconds 
and then be able to just maintain. You couldn't put your feet on the bottom, so you couldn't rest. And you just have to maintain for, I can't remember, they're like seven-minute quarters or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, you had to be super fit. So we just did there was lots of lots of laps, lots of swimming. And, of course, we were training to competitively swim as well. It wasn't just water polo. Yeah. Um, and then, um, but, but it was really fun to see the way the school got around it. So at that stage, the school had an outdoor swimming pool and it was kind of next to all the basketball courts and at the end of one of the rugby pitches. And, and, uh, and so we started like, there was a whole bunch of teachers, a bit of bravado, you know, so a whole bunch of teachers said, we want to play you guys. And so we would have like annual teacher student water polo games. And it was, it was seriously, it was the only time you were allowed to be really vicious with a teacher. <laughs> Were you all a competitive team or? Oh, highly competitive. Really? How'd you all do? They weren't a competitive team, team, but they were good players. And obviously some of them, like, I mean, obviously the guy who trained us, uh, funnily enough, we had a, had a, had a Marine that was, Mm. that was, uh, was a teacher at the school as well. And uh, so he was kind of, he would walk around like this and he he, he kind of, um, and he was, he was a good swimmer and a good, he played as well, played well as well. And so, but it was just, that was, it was good fun. It was, you know, the, the school, it was kind of like it became the the craze at the school to mm-hmm. this, this kind of weird water polo team that had yeah. never been seen before. Um, but it was, and we would, you know, we would do these, like we do it at lunchtime in the school lunch break. So, you know, and, and <laughs> the whole school would gather around the pool and watch it. It was, uh, it was, it was a ton of fun. And so, so you just got really fit. Right. I mean, we played against seven or eight different schools on a regular basis. We even played one team, which was combined guys and girls. Um, Cause you know, we were all pretty much single sex schools, but uh, there was one school that had girls in their senior year and uh, man, they were vicious. It was uh yeah. You had to really watch out for yourself. <laughs> you, you got, you got a championship trophy floating around somewhere over there? Or? Nah. No, oh, okay. because it was, there was no competition back then. It was just a whole, so we started and then a couple of other schools go, Oh, that's a cool idea. And so they started as well. Yeah. All right. So I got to ask this, him. Yeah. Cause you know, I know, you know what your records were. What was your record? The best year? What was your best? My, best, my best 53 was 29 seconds. All right. But what was your best that's, record in water polo for your team? As a player, what was that like as well? Uh, we, we like most of the games we played, we won our games. I mean, I scored, you know, your average game was, it, it's, it's very low scoring. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's probably three to five points max per team in a game. So, you know, so the best, the best I can remember, and I scored the, the winning goal, you know, was um, three to two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just remember I had the ball and I I'd suddenly lost orientation of where I was. It was an indoor pool at one of the schools. And all I heard was my coach going, shoot, John, shoot. They all called me John back then. Shoot, John, shoot. So I just went, threw <laughs> it in. And I mean, it's one of those things. Jesus, I wish we had iPhones and cameras back then, you know, because <clears throat> it just would have been one of the, it, it, I, could just, I just knew it was a magic shot. It, it just went slamming straight past their goalkeeper and you heard it smack into the back of the net. It would make awesome. this banging sound because the net would actually hit the back mm-hmm. of the pool. Yeah, and uh, just the most satisfying thing when it just it's straight, it's hard, and and it goes in, and it makes that banging <laughs> sound. Yeah, it makes the banging sound. <laughs> Got to have the banging sound. Without the sound, it's just like yeah, just a ball yeah. hitting the water. 
Man, that's awesome. So, bro. I mean, yeah. So swimming, swimming was kind of, you know, even today, <clears> I mean, it's, it's, it's how you and I started really hanging out, right? Just, mm. I wouldn't call it water polo or anything vicious, but you know, just floating. I just love being in the water. Um, love the beach, um, like the pool. Um, you know, it's been one of the, probably one of the downsides, you know, the only downside of being in America is really, there's just not, there's nowhere to swim here. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in Australia, every town, every city that you can swim year round. Um, in, in I can quite do that here. Yeah, can you can. Here. I mean, I, I can't where I am. <laughs> well, no, I just mean because there's an indoor pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. That's it. Only because there's near, an indoor. If I was pool. near a big university, I'm sure I'd be able to as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, cool. And so this was all when you were at the private private school, the private yeah high college, school. or is this, yeah. this is high school? Yeah. And so yeah. you said you got accepted into that because of your your musical talents as well. Yeah, right? I was on a music scholarship at the school. It's a private school. Um, and, uh, you know, today, if you go to that private school, you're paying eighty dollars to $100,000 to mm -hmm. go there. Um, so it, um, so I was on a scholarship that paid all my music tuition and half my fees. Mm. And and I, I lived on campus, so I, I boarded there as well. Which, so, you know, how did you get into boarded. the violin? How did you pick? I mean, yeah. I asked that because I can remember when my son, my youngest son, decided to play an instrument. Basically, yeah. at around fifth grade, they kind of have a music class and – yeah, you're just yeah. praying that he doesn't pick like the tuba or the bassoon, <laughs> and he comes home drums, with this massive something. thing. Yeah. No drums, I'd have been okay with too, you know. But I mean, it's I, just I'm not massive. Gonna, I'm not going to lie; you'd probably load the violin into that list as well because uh -huh. when you're learning to play the violin, it it kind of sounds like a bunch of strangled cats. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, so it was. Uh, so I was playing the piano. Mum and dad insisted that we had, we were very rounded. So we all did music. So we all started off on the piano. Mm -hmm. um, all of us, except for my younger brother, um, stopped playing the piano. Uh, my brother then went into flute, but he kind of didn't do any music beyond there. Tim, my younger brother, he stayed on the piano, but he also played trumpet. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so I played the violin. Um, so they had a string program at our little primary school. Um, you know, the, the, yeah, you got to understand how things are structured in Australia. It's a little different, but, um, but yeah, they had a string program at the school. And, uh, so I, and then, um, basically there was a couple of kids there that were getting private tuition and, and they said, Hey, you should come and talk to our teacher. You're actually pretty good. You know, this is, I mean, pretty good in like second or third grade, you mm -hmm. know? <laughs> and, um, and so I did, and that's where I, you know, then went. You know, I went and I worked with a professional teacher. Um, we had a falling out with her over one of the teachers that she worked with. Musicians are a funny mob. And um, and then I ended up with this other teacher from Sydney. And then he was the head of strings at the, the private school that I ended up going to. So he, he lined me up for a scholarship. I was offered the scholarship within about three days of doing my audition um and uh and so you know i mean my standard was pretty high i mean even going into year eight i was doing stuff they're doing in second third year university here mm -hmm. um so yeah i was yeah it was just that that's how i got into it and I, I loved it i still enjoy it today um you know it's obviously it's a social thing now it's not really a um not not doing something or doing it properly mm -hmm. uh, i tried i tried a bit of fiddling so now i live in in appalachia man but uh that's a whole other skill set. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a, a totally different skill set. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we, we talked about how. Uh, so now you, you've you've 
you've kind of gone through high school. You you played sports, did some rugby. Obviously, yep. uh, you, you swam swam yep. competitively the whole time you were in, in high yep. school or primary school, and then played water polo more as kind of like a club sport. I guess it was. Well, it was like, school, but um, it was school. You know, sport. Okay. No, it was at school, um, but you know the school didn't have a formal competition back then. Mm-hmm. They do now, but uh, yeah, they didn't back then. So, so you, had to, you and, had to find other schools that were doing it. Yeah. So and then I said, I'm after graduation. So you graduated high school when? 1989. So 35 years this year. Right here, bro. Yeah, same man. here. 1989. Yeah. So my diploma says at least. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I think I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When yeah. I printed it out, I typed 1989. So that's all I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And then, so what's next after 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 primary school? Yeah. So after living at boarding school for five years um, and, and living a pretty good life at boarding school, um, you know, we had a lot of flexibility. We could come and go on the weekend as we pleased. And we had, I had a mate whose parents had an apartment they were never at um, in Sydney. And so we would always go and hang out at his place for the weekend and get up to stuff we probably shouldn't have. And, um, and Those are uh, stories so, I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Off record. Um, <laughs> no, on record. These, these are get... all in my all in my pre-Christian days. <laughs> okay. But um, look, no, it was it was it was interesting because um, so part of that was the thought of then you know the the most logical university for me to go to was Wollongong University. It really good. It's it's a great school even today. And um, you know, we have a similar system. Finish high school, you have certain ways of getting into university. It's a little different to here. Um, and so you choose a university and hopefully you get the marks to get in. It's very, you're not doing kind of entrance essays and, you know, you're not pitching to schools. You don't know until after you've finished what school you're going to get into. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of it's based on a mark, like a score mm-hmm. and, um, similar to a GPA, it's a percentage basically. And, um, and so, uh, I applied to Sydney university, Macquarie university, um, and, uh, I think Wollongong, uh, so the Australian National University. And anyway, the, basically I chose, you, had, you could choose five schools. I chose four I knew I couldn't get into and the ANU, which I knew I probably could. And um, and so the Australian National University uh, was in Canberra, in our capital city, um, because then I'd have to live on campus. And you know, if I went back to Wollongong, I'd probably have to live at home. And mm-hmm. after boarding school, I just didn't think I could cope. Yeah, and nothing against my parents or anything, um, and I, I, probably the reality is they wouldn't have been out of cope. And um, so I went to Australian National University, started there. So university year starts in February, February March, because uh, we do calendar year school, and uh, in 1990, and uh, and so in, in university in Australia, you go to university and you live in a college. So you refer to college here in the US. I know it's more your, your undergrad schools and stuff like that. But you go to, you live in a college, so that's your dorms <laughs> in, in, uh, in, in America. And so I uh, got into Bergman College, um, which you know, had about 300 students in it. Um, I got in on the basis of the fact that I was a musician and could contribute to the arts of the college and all that sort of thing. The funny thing was, <laughs> is that I enrolled in accounting. So I was destined to be an accountant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're shaking your head, man. It's just like, it, I, so I was, I was the classic case of take a gap year and think hard. 
and I didn't do it. I had an opportunity to go and live and work in a in a boarding school in the UK. I, I turned it down. You know, there's there's some reasons behind that. Probably more about what I understood about myself and that back then. Um, it was a school my brother had been at two years before. Mm -hmm. So, it was so why didn't you take it? Um, so it was funny because, well, not funny, but they were, so he went there and he was like a, a swim instructor, a lifeguard and, and, um, and coached rugby. He was a very good rugby player. Um, and, uh, and so ended up playing first grade club rugby in Australia and a very, very good player. And, uh, and so all I thought was that they offered sport and, uh, I needed to turn it all down going, well, I'm not really, I'm not really that good at sport. I, I enjoy it, but I'm not that good. Mm -hmm. I need to find out they were also a top music school after I turned it down. Mm. And so it's, it's just, it's just the way it played out. And, uh, and so that, that would be, if I had any regret in life, that would be it. Thankfully I've only had one. Yeah. I just, I <laughs> just you know, wanted to make. That's, yeah. That, that changes, you know, that changes a whole bunch of stuff as well. So I went to university way too quickly, <clears throat> failed it two years in a row. Didn't get the picture very quickly got kicked out of university for failing a subject twice. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they allowed me to, we had to beg and plead, and they allowed me to re-enroll as a non-degree examinable student. And they said, pick some subjects based on a degree you'd like to go into. And if you pass them, we'll let you into that degree. <laughs> it's like, so then it starts to sound a bit more like an American school, right? Where you've mm -hmm. got to prove your case. So, yeah. you know, so at that stage, so first two years, of course, um, it, you know, in my third year, I'd become a Christian by then my life had settled down a lot. Um, and so, you know, I was a lot more serious and about getting stuff done. And so, and that's, so in my non-degree stuff, I actually studied political science and what was called population studies, so sociology. And I just loved it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely loved it. And, um, and so, but if I thought back through my journey, it's like, I always loved, we would sit around the table. Uh, as a family and dad would ask questions about capital cities of the world or, you know, stuff about culture from other countries. And that we were very, uh, we knew a lot about the world we lived in. And that was, uh, it was pretty normal in an Aussie household, mm -hmm. but I loved uh, geography was always my best subjects. Um, you know, a lot of the humanities stuff. And so, so, you know, if I'd really thought about it, I thought that would have been a much wiser choice than mm -hmm. accounting. <laughs> um the only benefit that accounting gave me was I did economic statistics and passed, which I think I passed two subjects that year and I passed it. And that then allowed when I did my master's in marketing, it meant I didn't have to do marketing statistics because mm. they gave free rec. That's so it was good. the only benefit that's I got good. from that entire degree. That's, that's so good. That is so yeah. good. So, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to skim over this. You talked, sure. you mentioned how, it was in your latter years of college is when you when you came to know Jesus and and your relationship with Jesus was formed. Should, like, should have been so, my latter years. It was right in the middle, but yeah. But yeah. so your your middle years. But I mean, I'm not saying I want to hear all the stories of, of of post, but I think it's important that 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 we hear and that you share that story with us. And yeah. I want to hear it. Like, yeah, what, it's interesting. What was John yeah, like before that? And then and then what like uh, what was that transition? And and what what did God do inside of you to kind of yeah. go, hey? it's time for you to, to kind of change years. Like what were those things? Like I, I want so, guys, cause so that's have, part of your I have like memories story. of my brother and I, they, you know, they would do these things in Wollongong called town hall rallies. Like, so we, we grew up dad, mom and dad sent us to church. Yeah. You know, obviously after I, you know, kind of recommitted in my third year of university, kind of realized that it was more 
like we would say in America, it's more cultural. Um, but um, so we grew up in the Anglican church, very Bible-based church. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in the youth group and all that sort of thing. But it just wasn't like, even though it was more like you're part of a club. So you did the right things to be part of the club mm. rather than it was a real live faith. And so probably about 14 was when I made what, what you would say, I made a decision, you know, like I, somebody said, Hey, does anybody want to follow Jesus? And I, I, I have recollections of that being with my younger brother. Um, and he's, he's still very much a faithful believer today too. And, um, and so that was at a town hall rally. And, uh, and then really nothing from then on, there was no real discipleship. There was, you know, you're a boarding school and, you know, and at, at 16, 17, uh, so at the legal age of drinking in Australia is 18. So at 16, I was able to get hold of my brother's old driver's license and, uh, we go into pubs and stuff like that, you know, and, uh, and so probably started drinking a little bit. I never was an alcoholic or anything, but I started drinking. When I was about 17. You know, we go into bars in Sydney and go out to nightclubs and stuff and parties. And what was um, nightlife in Sydney at that age, man? What was that like? Oh, a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> New Year's Eve in particular, because it's the middle of summer, right? Yeah. And uh New Year's Eve, there's like three million people downtown in Sydney or two million people. And there's just it's just it's just fun. Just crawling with people. Um, you know, back then there were no kind of, you can't have alcohol in this area kind of deal and lots of outdoor spaces. And so we would just go and find a couple of takeaways as we called them and, and just go and hang out. But, uh, so Sydney nightlife was fun. Um, you know, it's, um, but, uh, yeah, so coming back to that story. Um, so then, then I went to university and of course, just, you know, you know, was they two sheets to the wind, you know, it was like, how, how much, how much can I, how much alcohol can I absorb in one night? You know, it's, um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, just had a lot of fun. I mean, most of the photos I look back through, I've still got all the photos of me in, in my first year of university. So they do a thing called O week at university orientation week. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little different to kind of the orientation stuff they do in America, because of course in Australia, most people are able to drink at university because you're 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, always these massive events in the university, kind of in the main quadrangle area, there was a uni bar and that would spill out into the quad. You can't imagine it at an American university, right? And uh, and each college- Not anywhere else but Louisiana. Yeah, right. Yeah, fair enough. Well, yeah. Um, and then each dorm, as you would call them, so each college had their own bar as well, which were ridiculously cheap. And then you'd have these bar nights. We had like six colleges on this back road of the university and they'd do bar crawls and stuff. And so it was just, um, there was just a lot of alcohol. Australia does actually have a binge drinking problem. Um, and, uh, and so it was just more that you just, you just did it to hang out. You know, it was kind of the, you hang out with your mates and you drink a lot and mm -hmm. um, it wasn't an, an alcoholic thing. Uh, you know, hand on heart, never, ever touched any drugs ever, never smoked anything ever in my life. But yeah, certainly had, certainly drank a lot. So didn't do too well at university, didn't focus. Um, and then, you know, it was really interesting. So again, O Week rolls around in, in 1991 and, uh, and this, this, this young guy had, had moved into the college um, you know, funnily enough, I just went for a walk with him around the lake just, just a few weeks ago when I was in Australia, this young guy moved into the college. And, uh, um, as I found out later, he just had a sense of, he lived in Canberra. So this was, this is costing him a lot of money to do it. 
um, he moved into the college and he's, he, he was a very committed Christian. You know, he'd, now that he was part of a, a very charismatic kind of Anglican youth church um, where all these guys had gotten kind of radically saved, so to speak, you know, kind of almost like Paul, you know, Saul the Paul kind of experiences. Yeah. Um, and so uh, all I remember is he was there on the first bar night and I'm trying to get him drunk. <laughs> I mean, we became mates straight away. We were the same age and we just became mates and he was living that the, the college room was overflow was, was full. So he had to live in these quarters until a space became available in the college. And so I'd allow him just to, I gave him a key to my room and allowed him just to set himself up and do whatever he needed to do. And he just kept saying, no, nah, man, I don't want to. And, and anyway, um, we just, I just remember we were going out for a bar night one night and he, he sat down with me and I think it was about six, seven o'clock in the evening, um, three o'clock in the morning, we wrapped up that conversation. We, he just, he started just sharing his journey, his faith. I just suddenly opened up about where I was at and how I knew I was off track. And and uh, the rest is kind of history. He invited me along to this funny little Anglican youth church uh, called St. George's Anglican Life Center <laughs> in, uh, in Southern Canberra. And um, about 200, 250 young people um, from early high school all the way through to, you know, early married um, and they would meet on a Sunday night and have just like a very normal church service. It was under the watch of the church pastor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that night it was a guy speaking called father Dean Braun. And uh, yeah, I just never, never forget. He, he passed away about probably was about a month after, after mm. I saw him speak. And here's this, here's this, here's this little Catholic priest. And I just in a 30, 45 minute story, like he's up there preaching in 30 to 45 minutes, I just saw a life I'd never seen before. And, uh, and all my, my response to that was, I want that life. Mm. That was it. And, uh, from that day on, there was no turning back. Um, there was an season there where I wasn't, I actually couldn't stomach alcohol at all for about six months. Like, as I, you know, there's always that tendency to fall back into your old ways. I was working at a nightclub at the time, which was pretty seedy in town. And, uh, and so, you know, so there was just this journey. Um, and there's a lot of other stories around that. But at the end of the day, then these, then all these guys, a couple of them lived in the college, some of them lived off campus. They just got around and then, and that's kicked off a whole discipleship kind of group. And, um, and so I, I really put it back to that. My, my ability to kind of really stick in there and, and you know that that was the turning point in my life like it was mm -hmm. a real it was you know even though i'd made that decision at 14 at 20 is when it became really real mm -hmm. what was it that you saw when you when you were when that priest was or that that gentleman father oh i just was just talking I just, like what was it that, that struck out to you just just the fact i was so used to you know um you know we would call it like reformed kind of preaching and teaching and stuff here, you mm -hmm. know, but more of the stayed or, you know, kind of, you no, know, I've just got to preach straight from the word. This guy just talked about his life and his journey and what mm -hmm. Jesus meant to him and all that sort of thing. But, you know, one minute he's dancing around the stage and he's laughing and the next minute there's tears coming out of his eyes. I'm like, there was just this expressive life to him that mm -hmm. I just had never seen in a Christian mm -hmm. before. And, um, and so it just, it just really spoke to me in terms of 
you know, I, I, I want to be able to bring that life to other people. Mm. And, uh, so yeah, he, he died of cancer about a month or so later. Oh, wow. Interesting enough. He was an American guy. Um, so he was in Australia doing kind of a circuit mm -hmm. and I don't know how he ended up at this poky little church we were at, but he did. Cause he also spoke at some massive, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, uh, I spoke at C3 at triple C church and stuff like that in front of thousands and there he was with us. And so, so yeah, that kind of started my journey, you know, within a, within two years, um, I'd moved to another church in Canberra just mainly because my car wouldn't get me to the other one <laughs> at a 1972 Toyota Corolla. It was a piece of crap, you know, and, um, and, uh, and so I went to a church that was nearer to where I was living. Um, and, uh, and that's where, you know, hanging out with folk that I would call quite apostolic in terms of what they see, what they understand, how they perceive the world around them and looking at where the church was going. Hmm. Um, there was a church of about five or 600 people at the time. Um, and uh, that just kicked off a whole different journey. So by then I was wrapping up my first degree at university, thinking about what's next. Um, I actually graduated married, <laughs> funnily enough. So a lot happened in that 1990 to 1996. A lot um, did happen. Wow, 96, oh that's when I joined the Marine Corps. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, but, um, I mean, I, but to give everybody a perspective, like, I mean, at 96, I mean, you're 24 years old. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, I literally turned 24. I had already been in the Marine Corps six months. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I turned 20, I turned 25 at the end of 96. Mm -hmm. and um and so and then we got married on uh, so i turned 25 on the 17th of november got married on the 30th yeah and um and so but that 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 kind of that four-year turnaround was quite profound um obviously i started passing my subjects at university i still joke today how i crammed a three-year degree into five and a half years you know it's um it's most kids it was, nowadays it was pretty it was pretty harrowing but um but being involved with christian groups on campus and um, you know, I was involved with a group called Students for Christ and they run, they ran mission trips every summer. So summer is our long holiday. So Christmas is summer in Australia. And so they'd run these trips and I had friends that went to, you know, the Middle East. I had a, a buddy who went and carried Bibles across the border into China from Hong Kong back when Hong Kong was, you know, still part of the British empire. Mm -hmm. um, it's very separate from China. I had, um, and so I went to, I went to Southern Africa. So I went to South Africa and Zimbabwe. We took the Jesus film back then, the gospel of Luke into all these kind of really remote communities. Um, and so, you know, there were just so many great opportunities to grow in faith mm. in that journey. Yeah. So. So after you, after you graduated college, I mean, obviously you, you're having this massive, you know, shift in your life and in your beliefs these last right. three, four years of college. I mean, you, you, you come into your faith in a whole new, I don't even want to say come into your faith. You just, your faith switches from being a faith to a relationship with your heavenly father. Yeah. Which, that's a good way which, to describe it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I know that through, for myself. Through, honestly, through his church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then met your wife. How'd you meet? How'd you meet Rebecca? So we were both on the music team at church and uh, she didn't like me and I knew, I knew her sister. So that was the basis. I get that. Yeah. I knew her sister. So that was the basis for, for me not to like her. 
And uh, turned out she just lived around the corner from where I lived in a, a house. There were four guys from from the ANU. We all lived there, and they, she lived in a group with a group of girls around the corner. <laughs> and um, and so it was funny because it was actually coming back from Africa. We had a we had a really dynamic cell group in that church as well, mainly folk around our age. And um, and she was in that group, and and they asked, they gave me the floor to share about my trip when I got back. And I was just talking about, you know, this this heart that God had given me for, for orphans in Africa and and uh, what I'd seen when I was there and who I got to connect with. And she just said, you know, for her, it was like that's when she first paid attention um, to, to anything I was on about. Because, <laughs> like, you know, she has this, she always had this, this like lifelong drive that, that God was calling her to, to orphanages, particularly, mm. particularly in Africa. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it just kind of evolved. We dated for about 12 months, 10 months. We were engaged for 13 months. Um, we got engaged and two, two months later, I was hit by a car <laughs> riding to work. And so- You never told me that story. Uh, hey? You never told me that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I used to, I used to ride everywhere. I mean, Canberra is a very bike friendly city, so I'd ride everywhere. I'd, I love driving. I wouldn't say that if you got hit by a car. Well, I was on the road, of course, normally you're on bike paths. <laughs> and, um, and so I was just going through a roundabout, this old lady, she looked right at me and then just came out just as I was going past her. And, um, and so thankfully I was riding to work. So mm. in Australia, that's a workers' compensation case. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, so it was. Let's put the do not disturb back on. Um, yeah, so uh, that was basically we'd been engaged for about a month, probably about a month, and so I ended up being off work for nine months. I had to have two wrist reconstructions. I had to have bone taken out of my hip. I had, you know, skin missing from my arm. All sorts of. I was. Jeez. I mean, it was it was a fortunate accident, and so um, so she kind of nursed me through that. So it wasn't it wasn't the Florence Nightingale effect, but um, but you know she kind of nursed me through that. We were obviously already engaged, um, and uh, and basically yeah, I just went through this this journey of healing, and um, so we decided I was stuck at home the whole time. We were engaged, so we decided to build a house while we were at it. Um, you know, we we built a house which was ready two weeks before our wedding, and uh, you know, and just. It was just part of that journey. Yeah, it was just I, I took took the year off because I got hit by a car. <laughs> so, well, I mean, what were you doing at that point? I said, so I mean, you're working. You said you're on your way to work, and and yeah, so I was um, political science and, and marketing. Yeah, correct? yeah. So political science and population studies meant I wasn't qualified for any jobs at all. And you know, this was this was the you know the mid '90s. It's not like today where yeah you know, they'll take you if you can make pee. You know. Uh, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, coffee. I don't know you know what that brown dirty water, but mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So they um, there just wasn't a lot of jobs. It was Canberra, so you're talking public. So it's like Washington DC. You really you you you're most reliable, and so I could get jobs in a mailroom in the public service or something, and they say you know, and you worked your way up. Um, I couldn't even get a job in a of a mailroom, and um, so I worked. I actually was already working in hospitality, so I was working in guest services, the bar, um, and room service at a five-star hotel, a casino hotel in Canberra, and so they basically they basically took me on full time in the in the back office yeah. uh, when I had that space to do that after my degree, <clears throat> and 
it was shift work. It was all right. I mean, you, I got to meet phenomenal people, um, but but yeah, it was never going to be permanent. But that's actually, funnily enough, where you know I I spoke to the HR lady at the hotel, and I also spoke to the head of marketing at the hotel, and I decided the marketing guys had way more fun, and uh, and that's because I knew I wanted to do something else, and I wanted to do something related to people. And so um, that's when I chose marketing and I got into a master's at Canberra University, um, which was the year after we got married. And so, so then somebody saw me doing my master's um, at Xerox and then they hired me into their customer service team. And so, yeah, so it was kind of just progressing through, you know, just doing whatever you could back then. I was working, mm -hmm. I was packing shelves at a local supermarket. Um, you know, I'd work in, I worked in mine, work in restaurants and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, yeah so what'd you do for xerox and how long were you there xerox i was in first i was in uh the, what's called their document suppliers division so i uh, pretty much done to mifflin selling paper <laughs> paper and supplies and um and uh and then i moved into what was called it was i worked and then moved into the machines division and worked in post sales so post sales was basically it was it suited me down to a t you know it was Post sales was basically going around all the clients who had bought a machine and making sure they knew how to use it and they were happy with it. And mm. so I had my regular clients. I'd call in they had problems and like, you know, the local the local uh, senator in Canberra, her team loved me. So I'd just call in. They'd make me toast and coffee in the morning and stuff like that. And um, and uh, so, yeah, it was all post-sales stuff. Um, and I did the Xerox sales training back in the day when it was, you know, considered to be some of the best and, and Xerox sales reps. Well, I don't know if they still do, but they, they, they did extremely well. Mm -hmm. You know, good machines, good product. Um, so that was, so it was called Fuji Xerox. It was actually an Australian version of, of Xerox here in America, but all the same machines. Um, yeah. So I did that for a while. Um, and then they actually laid me off because I was too qualified after I got my degree. Now, I was okay with that because they actually paid for my degree. But mm -hmm. and one of the rules was if we pay for your degree, you have to stay for two years or you pay it back. Mm -hmm. Well, they let me go. So that actually broke the contract. So, I why'd, they, so why'd they let you go? You uh, said overqualified. Just, just, the, but... just the state of the market. Yeah, look, I'm, no, I wasn't overqualified. I was overpaid. Um, mm. You know, and it was funny. I had a guy come to me about it about two weeks after and he said, look, I, I've got enough documentation here for you to file an unfair dismissal. I just didn't. Hmm. I, just, I was like, no, I'm, no, I'm good. And, you know, it's always those moments where it's like that throws you out the most and they become some of the most defining. I mean, that really, yeah. that started my journey towards my own business um, and, and really getting connected into this sense of marketplace calling. Hmm. So. That's good. So, uh, how, so, so, well, let's, let's talk about that progression. I mean, you yeah. now, I mean, you, you, you're going from Xerox, you, you've, you know, been laid off, fired, whatever. Yeah. Probably about 97, 98. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I know, I mean, obviously because you and I are longtime friends and I know your story, I know that there was some, a lot of the things that you did after that. I mean, and especially now that you have your master's in marketing. So let's yeah. kind of talk oh, through yeah. that. I mean, I, I want to make sure that we're, we're telling a little bit of that story <laughs> yeah. so we can go back and we can share the lessons that you learned and how that is eventually applied to what you're doing now and what you, and what we're doing now. hundred um, percent. Yeah. So, so, um, so I worked in a couple of kind of, you'd call them, you'd call them like 
contract positions, but they were paid casually. So I did I did one stint um, with the government when they were introducing the the goods and services tax, a consumption tax in Australia. So I did a stint working on a hotline there, and just just really just taking anything that would get me somewhere closer to a marketing job. Um, but then I became good friends with a guy um, who ended up being the project lead for building what they called Australia's national cathedral. Um, you know, every country has its cathedral or its its place of worship that kind of epitomizes in a capital city. And, um, and Australia didn't have one. <laughs> so you had a couple of churches around Parliament House. but And so they built this, this place called the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture. Um, it was funded by some of the big money families in Australia. It was a, it was about a five, $10 million project. And so I got a chance to do like a lot of um, market fundraising and meeting some of these people uh, working alongside this guy. And they basically just paid me a very basic income to do that. And uh, it was kind of cool, you know, watching that project come out of the ground and, and get built. And then the queen came and opened it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got to meet her as well. And that was kind of fun. Uh, you know, and that's when I started to kind of, like I didn't need to be around famous people, but I kind of love the hobnob as well. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. kind of fun to be around these people. Um, and that probably started some of that journey. Um, yeah. And so, you know, working with those kinds of people, there was, we had lots of discussions around marketplace Christianity and what does it, what does it mean to be a Christian in business? And this is in the late nineties, right? So a lot of the conversation back then was more around God wanting to prosper your business, you know, how you manage your finances, how you lead, all that sort of thing. Um, certainly almost zero conversation about church in the marketplace or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, it was much more disconnected. Like, you know, you do this thing out here and then you have your church. Um, and so, and so, yeah, it was, I then got a gig with a, um, with a, a startup software company um, in the late nineties. And, uh, and we were developing an online task management tool today. You just go, so what? But this is 1999, 1998. <laughs> so it was, it was a big deal back then. And they called them, they now call them um, like cloud-based products. Mm -hmm. um, but back then they were called application service providers, ASPs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, and, and marketing and developing this and working with techs and all that sort of thing to, to launch this product. Uh, the product launched okay. Um, it was called General Manager. And uh, I learned a lot about coding. I learned a lot about the tech marketplace. Obviously, we were riding the dot-com boom of the late 90s, which then mm -hmm. crashed in 2000. Um, and so uh, it taught me a lot about that entrepreneurial world. The, the, the guy that I worked alongside, you know, he was an entrepreneur. He just just had incredible today. He's a, he's a multi-billionaire. Um, I kind of wish I'd hung around him a bit longer, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, good guy. He's, and he was basically involved in our church and he ended up being quite a senior guy in the international Christian chamber of commerce. And, um, and so just, just his marketplace picture, he would sit down with me. We'd sit down over lunch, just, I mean, we'd be just chatting out in the front porch at the office and, and he'd just go, John, I just know, I just know that God has called you into the marketplace. And mm. I'm like, no, no, he hasn't. No. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I was leading worship. We were leading youth. I thought that sounds like fun. I'll stay there. And, um, and sure enough, you know, my pastor even got a hold of me. He said, he actually fired me from all my positions at church. 
Um, and he, he's one of those guys, he kind of, he says, I want you to stop doing everything. And, and he must have seen a shocked look on my face. He goes, oh, no, 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 you haven't done anything wrong. In fact, you've done everything right. But God is calling you out here to build the church, mm. not in mm. there. Mm. And he said, I want to give you everything I can to help you do that. So um, how many how many years were you working in marketing prior to that? Like kind of seeing that awakening? And obviously, you're still working in marketing. Well, no, I only, sure. got, I only got my degree. I only got my degree in 96. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90, gosh, 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what kind of when, so two or three years? You, yeah, you worked for Xerox, and that really wasn't a lot of marketing. That was more of a sales position, kind of outside sales. I mean, obviously some marketing because you're yeah. you're, you're you're interacting, but then you're you're marketing, raising money, helping do these things. Like, talk to me about yeah. that. Like, what are the what are those things that you learned? Because I think you know, this isn't just guys listening to hey, hear your story. I think there's things that, that we can all that you can share. Hey, things that I did, things that I shouldn't have done, or or, or or lessons learned for during your days yeah. working in marketing um, because all those led to and have played a part of your journey as a marketplace pastor. Yeah, you know? definitely. Definitely. No, it's a great question. And and so, so a big piece of it is, um, you know, I, I learned, I learned a lot about interaction with different people, mm. but, I, but in that journey, I've, I've never been phased by people who, you would say a famous or whatever. Like I just, I like being around people and mm. I like seeing people for who they are, no matter where they come from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was working in the lobby coming out of the national small business summit dinner, where we had a private reception with the prime minister and a bunch of ministers. And I walked outside and started talking to a homeless guy out in the street in Sydney, you know, and just, just chatting with him. And it's just like, and I was in my suit and everything. <laughs> You know, it's just, so it, it really, and I think that was part of school as well. It just taught me just, these are just people mm-hmm. and people are just people. And, you know, we, you know, certainly in my Christian journey, we all stand before God and there is no queen of England there is or king of England. There is no prime minister of Australia. There is no CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. There's just people. Yeah. And, and they all need Jesus and they all need that redemption and they all have a bunch of problems. A bunch mm-hmm. of challenges more so highlighted when they get into the limelight. And so there was partly that. And, and you know, some of it was, um, you know, my my whole philosophy go, was, was kind of, I'll just say yes and see what happens. Mm. <laughs> and so, or, or as I always say, I live in the land of why not. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, that kind of brought us to America as well. And uh, so just, so I, I found that as you did that, you know, I would say four out of five were, were tough and didn't go very far. And then there was that one that just the connection was incredible and, mm-hmm. and it made a world of difference, right. To somebody or to yourself. Yeah. So I just learned that there were, you know, there was less, I mean, we can just spend so much time kind of being introspective and I just got to make sure I get this hundred percent right. And there was a part of me that learned that, no, you don't, you, 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 you use the term just to see what sticks Right mm-hmm. now, it's not as flippant as that, um, but I did learn a lot about the grace of God in that journey. Is mm-hmm. there a perfect journey for me, or is God's grace sufficient? What and, were you dreaming about at that point? Like, I mean, what when you think about that, when you think back to that time, and you're going, "Hey, you know, here I am, just graduated with my master's degree. I'm, I'm doing a couple. You know, I've I've, I've done some time at Xerox. I, I enjoy enjoyed that. Had a great job there." started getting into some marketing. Like, where did you see yourself at that point in your yeah. life? In, in I like didn't actually really become 10, 15, the 20 years. 
yeah, I didn't really become the visionary guy until probably I launched my first business. Mm. Um, up until then, like there was a sense of calling, you know, to be there for people who run business, not the business itself, to be a marketplace pastor, build the market hope church, all that sort of thing. Um, but even that, a lot of that came along when I was, okay, I'm now in, I'm, I'm in this zone of I'm going to start my own business. Mm. And so that was, that was when I really started dreaming and I started getting some really fascinating pictures of what I felt God was showing me for the marketplace and what the marketplace church might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even back then, you know, this is, this is now early 2000, even back then it was, it wasn't just Christians doing nice business and, and maybe doing it with each other. It was, you know, these were, you know, disciple making, they were building the church where they were, you know, there was some pretty edgy stuff going on. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that's when I really started to dream about this. I started hanging out in, in kind of more, um, you know, kind of prophetic intercessory circles as well. And so you were getting lots of, of pictures of things that could be, um, that have been. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it, I really didn't, that really didn't, the, the big dreaming didn't really start until then. So and when part, you were of, in... part of that was maybe I just didn't give myself permission to dream about something mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, where do you think that came from? Um, I think, you know, we just, we grew up, even though dad was a small business owner and that, you know, the, the stuff that rings in my ears is, you know, the world doesn't know you were living and, you know, you know, sometimes you got to do, you know, you just do the stuff that sucks and, you know, but you make money and all that. And it was like, just, it was, it was a, a uh, little, little bit, you know, the, the stuff that really opened my eyes was when, I mean, apart from reading the Bible was when I started to look at stuff like rich dad, poor dad, and realizing that there were just mindsets that I, that I think most of us accept. Mm. Um, and particularly being in business and being a business consultant, marketer, coach for 25 years now, um, just seeing this poverty mindset across business. Mm. Um, it's funny. Business. I mean, I grew up. I mean, it's my just mom. a human condition, obviously, but Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up and I, and I can remember always being told there's never a reason you should not have a job. Yeah. Like, yeah. even if you even if you have to work at McDonald's, you should have a job. Like, and yeah. and so there was no, there's no joy, no passion, no vision, no, yeah. like, and, and, and there's a little bit of, I will say there's a little bit of truth in there, you know, because sometimes you may have to do that crappy job to get to where your vision is going to get you, but it's that's, not just a crappy job. It's That's not just a point. crappy job that you're doing. Um, I, right. I was listening to, right. I, I just, I just wrapped up a book. I was listening to uh, be useful by Arnold Schwarzenegger, which oh, I yeah. actually yeah. really, really loved I, You and I chatted <laughs> a little bit offline, yeah. but I mean, I mean, he's just, he was telling a story. He's like, I'd work out in the morning and then I'd go lay bricks because I had a brick laying business and that's how I paid my bills. And then I'd work out in the evening. He's like, and I would yeah. sleep in my car in the afternoons Cause that's when I was able to get some sleep and I'd eat my lunch in my car. And he's like, and I built, yep, you know, whatever he needed chimneys, fireplaces in, in Southern California. And I'm just like, he's like, it's not what I wanted to do, but it's what I had to do. Cause it was yeah, part of getting me to my yeah. vision. Yeah. 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 So you, you said you started very, a market- very much, very much the same story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you started this marketing firm. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's what you said, start a business. So it's a marketing firm. What kind of things are you guys doing? And, so it, it sounds a little dorky now that, you know, we're no longer in 2000, but uh, I was a virtual marketing manager for small companies. 
mm-hmm. and so they couldn't afford a full-time marketing person so fractional you would call it here um you know this is back before that was even a done thing mm-hmm. um i've been working from home since 2000 or since 99 you know so it's like you know i, I basically just ran it all from home i had a laptop and a phone I uh, had a couple of really great little clients that just paid some of the bills. My wife was working full time, so that helped. Um, and so, just really, just dived into that, and you know, I did that for quite a while. But one of the things I did is I, I love the networking space, and so I thought I'll build a I'll build a networking organization. <laughs> but why not? And so, with a couple of couple of of people that I knew at the time, we launched a an organization called the Micro and Home Business Association. And so we represented businesses under two million revenue, uh, with less than less than ten staff, something like that, and uh, and and it basically accounted for eighty six percent of businesses in Australia. The, mm. the numbers are like that here in the US as well. It's like the, a massive majority of businesses are very very small, and um, and so. So I started this micro and home business association thinking this will help me get influence. So at this stage, my pastor's sitting alongside me saying, let's talk about your church. What, 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 what is God, what kind of church is God calling you to build? And I knew it was just amongst business people. Now, just in Canberra in the city that I lived, um, you know, which is about the size, you know, a bit bigger than Asheville here uh, back in the day. Um, you know, we reckon there were about 20,000 of these businesses just in that city alone. And, um, and so, you know, just incredible opportunity to get them together, to network, to be there for them. And, and then, you know, obviously as a marketer to be able to help them and, and that, but uh, so that then funnily enough, that then landed me a seat. Uh, first of all, on the state government, small and micro business advisory council, and then landed me a seat on the board of the council of small business of Australia. So the next thing I know, I'm lobbying at state and federal level for small businesses and made these great connections, got all these great opportunities. Um, now this and then, is, when you say lobbying, you mean, I mean, I, I, I kind of understand. I was, I was a federal getting, government lobbyist. So yeah. you're getting paid by these yeah. companies to go and lobby on their behalf. Yeah. So, so the Council of Small Business, its members were business membership organizations, mm-hmm. right? And then, then Cosbo, well, when I became the CEO of Cosbo, they paid me to be the CEO, but I was on the board. So that was an unpaid position. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and the Micro and Home Business Association, they had funding yep, to pay me to do that as well. And so we ran, you know, kind of group coaching kind of spaces and stuff. And so, but what, what I realized was just the, you know, and, and being a marketer, we'd build these great brands and messages and, and, and help people do stuff. And then they'd still fall in a heap. Right. Um, some of them would obviously succeed, but some of them would fall in a heap. It's like, well, what's going on there? And I started to realize that it was, it was the people who were leading it that were mm-hmm. the challenge, not, not the fact that they had a great product or didn't. And, uh, cause I mean, you look at some of the terrible products out there that are doing really, really well. Right. And, uh, and so, um, so yeah, so we we basically um, uh, got into this space. Um, you know, started as I ended up in the federal lobby doing less local stuff, and um, and uh, yeah, so then got to meet two prime ministers. They sent me off to small business summits overseas and stuff like that on behalf of Australia. Um, it was just a it was a really cool season, and God was just showing me 
just how like a all, all the time going geez you're sitting there talking with the prime minister going i hope he doesn't know how bad my business is <laughs> you know i mean it wasn't bad but you know just you just felt so insignificant in these mm -hmm. rooms and um but at the same time it's like you know there was just this constant reminder that god had placed me there in that season to be that person mm -hmm. to speak into the world of kings um and uh it was just incredible like it was just like this just for five or six years god just showed me this incredible journey that if you just yeah if you just hang about with him where he could take you yeah and uh and there was no there was no like i did this so this worked it was like it was all him yeah and uh and so so that funnily enough then got I mean, just very quick sort of jump forward that got me on to um a christian business leadership group because of course now I'm, I'm now the lobbyist for small businesses so christians come out of the woodwork wanting to hang out with you you know and one guy in particular who i became very close friends with um i ended up going on his committee his leadership team and uh we ran a a an annual national christian business conference mm -hmm. and this year we ran it in sydney and the theme was businesses missions and we invited this guy called mike bear out to uh come and speak at it and that that then started a whole other journey where i then went in more into the leadership mm -hmm. space it was about 14 15 years ago and then of course led to us being in america so what happened with the the marketing business and the lobbying uh, and, and all that so and, and the small so business I, I went through iteration of buying and uh, like so i went through an iteration of buying like pretty much buying client bases and so forth uh the last marketing company i had um was a disaster um you know it was a good business we had some good good output just just very poorly run and and i probably stepped away from it too early uh we we had to move my son was quite ill at the time so we had to move cities and in, into a more humid environment and that sort of thing and so um yeah i just one day got a, a letter from the tax office saying you owe us a ridiculous amount of money which i'm like that's not right i was an owner of a business mm -hmm. um and uh and i rang my business partner and said what's the deal with this she just said yeah i haven't been paying tax and uh and that once we we just scratched the surface the whole thing imploded and mm -hmm. we we pretty much lost everything in that journey i think the whole thing probably ended up costing us about half a million dollars and six years of of paying stuff back and yeah. trying to do the right thing by people because I refused to go into bankruptcy. And um, and so that was my last marketing business, although I just operated as a private contractor doing people's marketing. And then then just this, you know, through a through a guy who's fairly well respected in the intercessory prophetic circles in Australia. I had lunch with him uh, down in Melbourne and and he said, So tell me about like just out of the blue, he said, So tell me about the call of God over your life. And I said, I said, you know, God has called me to be there for people who run business, not just the business itself and unpack that. And he goes, so what have you done since then? And I went, well, you know, I've run this marketing business. I've done this, that, and this has gone well, and this hasn't. I've tried this. He goes, you're not really there for people, are you? You're there for yourself. And, and like, he just, it just was the most profound moment. And then in that, in the next 10 days, five separate people, unscripted, uncalled for, you know, stopped, you know, one guy was having breakfast and he stopped and he went, he said, I just got this picture. And it was like, you know, those cartoons where a cartoon character runs through the wall and it's the perfect shape of the character. Mm -hmm. He said, he said, like, there's the shape of you on the wall. 
but you, you you're not going to fit through it because you, you're you're misaligned. It was like a really weird picture. And uh, he said he said God has called you to be a marketplace pastor. Why are you not building a business around that? And so that week, five people or that ten days, five people said exactly the same things. One of them was Mike Bear. And they were all on like no one. I didn't ask anyone. I didn't say this is what had happened. They all just one, two or three of them called me. Mike, for example, I had a call booked with him, and I went, okay, um, I've got I've got to change my direction. So I said I'm going to call myself a coach. I hated the term because I just thought I, I I would say back then I thought most coaches either needed a coach or were just arrogant so and so's. Um, but really, what I was afraid of was just being something significant and even mm. after everything i've been through as a lobbyist and all that sort of thing and uh that's, and so that's, it was that's, a, it was that's a, a scratch i'm going to scratch on in a minute so yeah well it was funny because like the the kind of the the turnaround so i was kind of scraping along with a couple of clients at the time just very small clients because I, I was really i knew i was in this transition season i was actually trying to get funding for a um a startup at the time, and I'd already been offered a quarter of a million dollars to launch it and that sort of thing. And I ended up turning around and turning him down because of what happened next was in that window, those five people, just different scenarios. And then, um, and then uh, um, I went along to, that's right, I went along to a BNI meeting. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with BNI at all, but it's an international networking kind of thing. Like it's a, it's a programized networking kind of thing. It's pretty good. Like not network marketing, but mm -hmm. you know, businesses get together each week. Yeah. And, and uh, I went along and it was a visitor's day and I went along and I thought, I'm just going to try this coach thing on. Just try it on for size in a, in a room with, you know, there were 30 people in the room in a little seaside town where we lived. And, uh, and they said, okay, Jonathan, your turn. I said, well, hey, I'm Jonathan Brake from Market Hope. I'm a business coach. And this is what I, this is what I'm passionate about. Well, and then they said, okay, so for all the people who are new, go and go and find the people you want to talk to. And it was funny. I went and stood in one, in one spot. Um, and the next thing I had a line of about 11 people <laughs> just wanting to talk to me and find out more about what I did. And I was like, oh my goodness. So in the next seven days after I made that choice to call myself a business coach, I changed some very basic wording on the Market Hope website at the time. I decided on the brand Market Hope because I already had it. And, um, and uh, in the, within the next seven days, I had 14 clients. Wow. Just, it just turned around like that. You know, one of them was like, I was, I, was at a, I was at a friend's 35th birthday. So that shows you mm -hmm. a little bit younger back then. And uh, <laughs> I was at a friend's 35th birthday. And, um, and uh, I was talking to her. We were sitting next to, we were sitting next to this couple that my wife knew the gal and and I didn't know the guy at all. And we were just chatting and he just said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a business coach. I come from a communications marketing background. And he just laughs. He goes, oh, I guess we need to talk. He ended up becoming a a $30,000 client. Oh, wow. And uh, every year for we ran for about two or three years. And uh, and so so it was just, that was, that was that evolution of that journey. And I realized that, that you know, I'd, I'd obviously started to train, retrain as a coach. So I went through a lot of the ICF, International Coaching Federation programs, which were being run by a local company in Australia at the time, and uh, and so you know, I just realised that that's that was the best way for me to be a marketplace pastor was to be mm -hmm. a professional coach.
and uh, it's kind of where I've been ever since. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so what have been some of the like most pivotal lessons that you've that that you've learned from that time prior to you moving into the coach has has really kind of helped you continue yeah. to be successful in this coaching industry. You know, yeah, like, what are absolutely. Those things that, for you, man. Well, so so one of the things as a lobbyist, I realized, you know, we we all complain about the government and taxes and red tape and all that sort of. Particularly in business, you'll you you know as you get into it more and more, you'll hear it a lot. Um, and what I what I realized was, in spite of all of that stuff, and we can call conspiracies, we can say what we like, but in spite of all that stuff, people who just get in and get after what you know what they're passionate about, what they're almost called to do, some of them don't understand it's calling, but it is. Um, and they do it really well and they do it diligently, they still do, they still prosper. Mm. Now they prosper financially, they prosper in their families, they prosper in their in their communities, they're able to give more back. So I realized that it's like kind of just just it, it's okay to not accept certain behaviors, but just get on with it. Right. So I realized that the people who just jumped in, and I've seen that repeat over and over as I've traveled to, you know, Kazakhstan and Malawi and Uganda and places like that. I've just seen it. It just repeats itself everywhere. Just get into whatever it is that God's kind of put your hands to and do it and do it well and do it to the best of your ability. Um, I think, you know, the, that, that kind of that gap journey of, you know, I was kind of safe in the marketing space, definitely safe as the, um, as the CEO of the council of small business and, you know, and that's that sort of space and enjoyed it. But there was this always this yearning to get back to being this marketplace pastor, mm -hmm. which I didn't feel like I was able to do there. So coming back to your roots, you know, coming back to those things that that God put before you right at the start. Yeah. Um, the ultimate business lessons that I learned was in the collapse of that company. Yeah. Um, learning, learning to, you know, like I, I've got letters I can show them to. I've probably well, they're actually they're probably in Australia still. But, um, but I've got letters like when we had to wind everything up and we couldn't afford to pay the rent because there was another thing that wasn't paid during that season. And uh, I said, look, we sold our house and we had this chunk of money. I said, look, this is what I've got to offer. And they said, we went back to the land. This is the agent. We went back to the landlord. The landlord is prepared to release you with, with that offer. Mm -hmm. And it was like out of 49000 it might have been $5,000, mm -hmm. right? And so, but but wasn't just that. It was like then getting a letter from them saying, we want to thank you for the integrity that you dealt with this situation. Like they actually sent me a letter, like the landlord did. Thank you for the, most people just walk away and ignore it because we're a landlord. We've got lots of money. Thank you for the integrity that you showed in that. Um, you know, the stories that came out of that, one of the things that happened in, in that collapse period, it was kind of here in America, you guys were all going through that incredible economic downturn, mm -hmm. 08, 09. And, uh, and so it wasn't as bad in Australia, but it still hurt a lot of businesses and particularly ours because we were leveraged against government and government just stopped buying. And, um, and so, you know, I, I learned in marketing, don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> There's another quick lesson, but, yeah, you know, I also learned the value of, of a strong marriage, um, you know, in, in the journey of the business collapsing, you know, 70% of marriages end up in divorce over finances. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we just, we kept checking in both of us, Rebecca and I kept checking in on our calling. Did we believe God called us into this business in the first place? We both agreed that was the case. Yeah. There were things I could have done better that might've avoided a lot of that stuff. But anyway, it, it, it happened the way it happened. 
And um, and so I just thought, well, I've got I've got nothing else at the moment. I'm going to double down on my marriage. Yeah. You know, son was really sick at the time, and so that was challenging. Um, and so, um, you know, so it was just, and it was funny because then I was interviewed, for example, by Focus on the Family in Australia. Um, I, I got to know the CEO there really well in that journey. That's when I started having my conversations with pastors and helping them understand the church outside of the Sunday building. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and then, but we then launched a few guys. We just, what happened was, this is when I was with Cosboa, we, we had, um, yeah, you know, a, a guy that I found out he was a Christian. So we started having, he started, he became an intercessor for me while I was doing this role and in this journey. And he came to me one day and he's in tears and he said, yeah, a buddy of mine has just committed suicide. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, you know, he had a $2 million debt to the Australian tax office. So he decided to take his life because his life insurance would pay for it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I, I won't, I won't say live what I said, but, uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. And so out of that, he and I, and we got a few people around it and we started this nonprofit called wind up well, mm -hmm. <laughs> just helping businesses that were failing for about, we did about 18 months, just helping businesses that were failing. We, we got together with people who could do collections, people that could help get people through debt. Uh, we, we had a, we had an incredible connection with the Australian tax office where I had this guy, he was a, uh, he was, you know, one of the second in charge in the whole department. The ATO is like the IRS; it's a government agency, and um, and so, you know, um, and so we went through this journey where that year we were probably fifteen to twenty people that were just in absolute dire situations, you know, facing being cleaned up by the tax office, or we just helped them get out of these horrible situations where they were able to pick themselves up. We had. One, one person who, whose wife sent us an email and just said, you, you need to understand, my husband was, was contemplating suicide because he couldn't figure out how to get out of this. He was so depressed. And he said, what you did was just help him break through that so he could find another way out. And so we were able to bring the gospel through that as well. These weren't all Christian guys. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, you know, in the middle of this, crap that was going on in my world financially and business-wise we just saw some incredible stuff happen and god just turned up and it was awesome yeah so i was getting ready to ask you you know uh, and the question was what challenges did you face while deviating from these you know from your conventional path you know just kind of making that change from where you were at to going into this marketplace pastor role and what lessons and, and how did you overcome well, it? Well, it was felt and like I heard that was actually a forced move. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but I, I mean, I heard you like, so how did you overcome that? And you're just like, man, I started focusing on my family. Yeah. Yeah. You know, certainly, I, I, certainly I in that focusing on the family. Um, I, I decided to really simplify how I earned money, like just, mm -hmm. just do some basic consulting and coaching and keep it simple. Um, and so, you know, so, so I didn't have to worry about that so much. Um, I was fortunate. My wife worked full time as a teacher. Teachers in Australia get paid real salaries, and um, and so you know, we, you know, financially, there was a lot we were able to do mm -hmm. during that season as well. Like it wasn't like we just next thing we we're under a bridge as a family. That didn't that didn't happen at all. It didn't even come close. But it was that constant, you know, um, and then realizing the pressure people go through in some of these mm -hmm. situations. So when I sit alongside a business owner now and they're talking about 
and challenges of cash flow. And, and from the outside, you look at it and the business seems to be doing well, but you know they're under pressure. You know they're waking up today going, if I don't do this well, I'm screwed. How does that make uh, you feel now, though? I mean, when you look back, I mean, obviously you have a perspective when you look at it, when you're working with businesses, but just how has that, that massive, you know, falling apart that you just told about, you know, half a million dollars in debt, all this tax and having to sell our house, all those things. How has that affected you both from a coach's perspective yeah. and, and where you're going forward, but how is that still even having an effect on you that and you see even today, you know, as a lens that you see things through. Cause I know, I know that there's certain things in my life that kind of affect that, that I walked through or navigated years ago. Right. And yeah. I even probably have dealt with them, but without a doubt, they are still there. There are a pair of glasses I put on that I don't, I shouldn't always put on, you know what yeah. I mean? And so, well, how, and then how yeah, do you, yeah. how, how do you continually overcome that yeah. so that you can continue to move forward um, who you are and where you're at now. I mean, cause, and it's been a journey to where you even now are now. Look, it really is. I mean, you know, I was, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. It's amazing how many people came out of the woodwork and go, oh, well, you'll never do a partnership again, or you'll never do this. And like, I've had three partnerships since. So what I've done is it's not that you never do them. It's just that you, you are way more careful about how mm. you do it. So you just, but it's not, it's not caution as in, um, you know, you don't, you know, you're just being so cautious, you're not actually achieving anything. It's more, there are ways to structure, there are ways to do things. I mean, you know, what I know about our business now, I could easily have resurrected that business and kept going. Mm -hmm. But it just wasn't the journey at the time. It wasn't in my resources at the time. And, um, and so, you know, I've learned a lot about this process along the way. I've also learned that, you know what, it's just money. And, you know, that's, that's one thing about living in the West, in the US, in Australia, anywhere. Your capacity, if you're smart and tenacious and you've got a sense of purpose and some skills, you can make money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can make it work. You can, you know, and it's like, okay, God has definitely, it was, I mean, there were three months of licking wounds, I can tell you. I, I refused to talk to God. I, you know, he started trying to talk to me and I'm just like, nope, you're not my friend right now. <laughs> I, was having a, I was having a real moment, you know. You're having and, a pity uh, party. Well, it was funny. And then I thought, then I got into a zone like, okay, I'm ready to hear from God again. So I went to a prophetic conference and and all I heard God say is, I'm not going to speak to you here. <laughs> it's such a, I mean, it was almost like he's going, well, fine. You know, if you don't want to do it when you're ready, I'm not going to do it. No, mm -hmm. but it was funny because, but but then, you know, that that did actually trigger a re reawakening and a reopening of stuff. But um, tenacity, like I, I had tenacity, like I don't think I've ever had before, um, you know, seven years to pay off one of the debts. Mm -hmm. uh, we just paid, we basically paid an amount every month for seven years. The funnily, funnily enough, we paid the last payment one month before we got on the plane to come to America. Mm -hmm. And that was the last kind of hangover of that whole, whole period. And, uh, and so like, it was just like, there was just, so you started to see God moving seasons as well. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and the last thing you want to hear when you're going through the worst is, Oh, well, God's got a plan. It's like, you just want to you know, give that person, you know, the right hand of ministry, but mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's, but it's true. <laughs> At the end of the day, yeah. it's, 
it's true and it annoys you because it is true. And um, and so I've learned to accept those kinds of conversations more. It's like, yeah, it's a little glib, but, you know, um, but, but it's right. You know, God, God is working his stuff. Um, and there's a, there's a lot in there of, you know, you need to be more skilled in this area because that wasn't necessarily God. You screwed that up. And, uh, and so, you know, being able to be humble enough to tell the story from the point of view of what I did wrong mm-hmm. and, and how I went about that and how I learned to fix it. So, so when I hang out now, particularly coaching clients, and you've seen this too, right? People who just refuse to accept responsibility for poor behavior or for lack of skill or competency or whatever it might be. And if only they would just be okay with that, that's okay to, to not have those things so long as you work on it then you know you can you can grow and evolve through that and god can use that so how would you describe your leadership style now based on those lessons learned it's still highly relational um Mm -hmm. so you know it's you know one of the things that got me through a lot of that season were the strong relationships that i had both tactically in business and also the spiritual relationships Mm -hmm. you know we had a good strong men's group in the church at the time we would meet on a wednesday night around the fire and they'd a lot of them would end up praying for me <laughs> in that season. Um, but um, had some great relationships. I just remember one guy, you know, you know this, this is the guy that headed up the big marketplace stuff in Australia, rings me up once a week as this stuff's going down. And he's going to say, how you doing? How you doing, Jono? I said, I'm good. He, and he'd go, yeah, he was a very buttoned up kind of guy. And he'd go, BS, man. He said, tell me how you're really doing. Mm, you just need good. those guys that are going to get alongside you and just go, all right, dude. I'm not, I'm not wasting my time on the phone for you to tell me everything's okay when it's not. And yeah. I'm going to push in and I'm going to prod a little harder, whether you like it or not, because yeah. that's the right thing to do. And um, so it's that's true. taught me a lot of that in leadership, to stop and listen, to, to be able to prod hard and, mm-hmm. and not necessarily people like you doing that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so... Um, but it, but it very much, you know, th- this whole relational aspect, I think everything about God is relationship. You know, we have a relationship with his word. We have a relationship with him. You know, we, we, we build, we build uh, an experience of him through his people and through discipleship and through relationships there. And so a lot of that connectivity. So that, that's sure. very much a lot of that. Yeah. So in what ways do you believe these choices and you know, for your life and, and in your lifestyle have, have really influenced those around you? Yeah, look, I mean, so many. Now so I'm many pulling out stories. the big questions, man. Yeah, so many <laughs> stories. I mean, you, you start with business, you know, seeing people succeed in business, make choices they wouldn't have otherwise made, feel like they've got the competence to, confidence to, to step step into something. Um, you know, watching people make obscene amounts of money when there was just no way they could prior, um, just because they made better decisions and they saw things differently because you're speaking into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, sorry, just ask the question again, buddy. So it, in I, what I, ways I do you believe thought. your choices and lifestyle, like how you're living your life? I mean, you, we haven't, we haven't. The whole thing's been about you just kind of telling, talking about your journey so far, which has been awesome. But it's also showing how you've 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 constantly kind of um, just 
kind of blazing your own trail through this for lack of yeah. a better term. Right. You know, yeah. I was, I was riding this afternoon and, and I was like trailblazer. And it's, and it's funny because you and I, as, as business partners, you know, we have the forge leader, which is our, 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 our business and to forge means to create a path through the wilderness for others to follow. Right. Yeah. yeah. Trailblazer definition is someone who blazes a trail yeah. through the wilderness or what I actually wrote down was someone who marks a path through the wilderness for others to follow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's funny how the two of those are, are aligned very, very closely between trailblazer mm-hmm. and, and forge because, um, you know, forge is actually more of a verb. It's an action and a trailblazer is a noun. Yeah. It's a person. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so for you, I mean, how, do you, and so the question was really much, how, how do you, how do you believe your choices and lifestyles, you know, the actions that you have taken and as, as a trailblazer have positively influenced those around you? Yeah. Look, and, and, and I mean, I think about the spiritual journey to the church and the marketplace, that conversation, what does that look like? You know, that's constantly led me to people who are intrigued by that idea mm-hmm. or are already exploring something along those lines. And it's like a, a validation for them that, you know, they're, they're, they're on the right journey. Um, and, uh, and so, so there's that, I think, you know, um, not, not to, not to blow our own trumpet, but, you know, moving countries, it's not for the faint hearted. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're moving from Australia to America, which you would argue are, are, are relatively similar. I mean, there's a lot of cultural differences. Um, and so, you know, to then, you know, uh, manage all the different components of that, like, what does that look like for kids who are entering their teenage years and now they're in their late teens and early twenties, you know, mm-hmm. um, how do we, how do we build that out? How do you, I mean, the risk of coming to America, I had one contract and it wasn't enough for us to make our monthly income. Yeah. And so I had to build out a business around that, which was tough. It took me a few years to get that into a, a zone where, you know, more, more recently it's really taken off. Um, and so but you're in a foreign country. It's not like you're at home where you can just go, Hey, I need some help. <laughs> um, or I can go and get a job because I couldn't. And, uh, and so, so I think, you know, there's, there's that sense of, um, you know, really trusting God in that process. You know, if you want to be a real trailblazer, you have to trust God, you know, if you're forging a trail, so there's no one's necessarily been before you, although, you know, there's people that have maybe been on some kind of path like that. Um, it's, it's tough, but, and some of it, it's like, it's really hard to say there's a formula for it because I think for a lot of, a lot of it, we, we look for formulas and neatly packaged stuff, but it's just a trust journey. And uh, so that looks like daily, which I don't necessarily do very well either. <laughs> it's daily. Okay. Well, God, I trust you in this journey. Where are we going today? What are we doing today? And what do you want to do with that? And then as we go through some of these cataclysmic events, like, like that business um, closure, um, you know, there, there seems to be some things that we learn or some things that happen through that. We can look back, build that into our story, encourage mm-hmm. others along the way. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it becomes that. I think the big journey from here on is, is you know what what does the church in the marketplace really look like? I feel like mm-hmm. we're coming to a place where that's that's going to take its place. 
Um, right. And I still can't tell you exactly what that looks like. I've got some ideas, um, but I think that's the next trail to be blazed. Mm, uh, there are plenty of people out there doing Christian business and businesses mission and stuff like that. But what does it look like for a business to be the church where it is and disciple people and to, um, and so, um, and then getting a community of those together and they actually then become an economic powerhouse and a blessing to the community they operate in. Um, it's a very different picture of the church. And, and so that's, that's something that's been burning on my heart for 20 years, but now I'm starting to see some of the elements of what that might look like and, and, and that it's actually quite possible. Um, but, you know, when you talk about trailblazing the wilderness there, the kind of the thick scrub that you're hacking your way through mm -hmm. is religious yeah. mindsets and the way we do it. And I happen to love my Sunday morning thing, you know, and that sort of thing. And which, you know, obviously my response to a lot of that is, that's fine. <laughs> it's, uh, but there, but there is this trail and, uh, no, you should, I mean, you should go to church. I mean, on Sundays or Saturdays, whatever day you want to do it on. You, you should be in that's, community. That's, absolutely. That's, but that's where you build community. Like, and there's right. some accountability in there. That's, that's right. uh, I have, you know, I've been leading, you know, obviously, you know, my passion is, is coaching men, um, without a yeah. doubt. I mean, I do coach businesses. I mean, we are in business together. We, we coach businesses and we coach men. Um, so we, we cross both sides of that, but my bit is without a doubt to, to, men. Is is men? It's to encourage yeah. and equip them to be the leaders of called to be, uh, and, and I see I see a world where men are 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 confident in who they are, and and equipped to to do yeah. good things. And and when that world happens, like things change. But um, where was I going with this? So random. Well, we're talking about the church. Oh yeah, I, I yeah. used to tell the guys that I would lead in these different groups. I was always tell them is is your pulpit is your couch. Like your ability, I mean, and I'm not, and I would never tell them not go to church, but I'm saying is they have more influence in that space, right? Whatever that is, it could be their workspace. It could be their house. If, if that's where they feel that they're supposed to minister to people, right? Then yep. that's where, that's, that's who builds the church. That's who helps carry yeah. the kingdom. God created us to, to build his kingdom here. Yeah. Right. Um, and he works through us. And so I think that's, the, I think the key thing in there is that, you know, we talk about going to church. You can't go to church. We are the church, right? Mm -hmm. So we can go to a, a worship service and connect with the community and all that sort of thing, yes. um, which is good and right to do. Um, and so, I mean, it's just semantics, right? I mean, we, I know we call that church and, and in some cases it is, in a lot of cases it actually isn't. It's, it's really the way. <laughs> the way yeah. the way and and uh and so i think i think what we start to uncover and, and this is where we understand this probably better in business than say in that that institution of church is is that there isn't just a it's not like this is my church and this is it it's like there could be three or four expressions of that it, it's the it's the corporate worship the teaching the accountability the ability to to bring prophetic words, the ability to bless a community, to reach out, all those sorts of things, mm -hmm. to to do missions, um, and so, you know, so it's it's very much, um, you know, we we're involved with a, a quite traditional Presbyterian church, which is a beautiful uh, group of people, um, but I also I get my teaching from different sources. Um, yeah, I have different groups that I hang out with that I consider to be, you know, my church you know, like discipleship. 
Um, and, you know, my, my vision of the future is, you know, going into a city and seeing 10 to 15 businesses led by Christians that say, we're going to get together and be the church and mm. really bless this community. And so that that's a picture. I don't have a full picture of that yet. I don't even know how that plays out. So I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm just trusting God that he's put something in my heart there and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I do not, not because I necessarily want it to, but I do see the Sunday church continuing to shift and evolve as, as kind of society changes and what you can and can't do as a Christian shifts as well. Um, so there's some challenges, there's some headwaters ahead, particularly in the Western church. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but you know, God's, God's going to build his church. He loves his church. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, and, uh, it's just fun while we're, it's fun while we're doing it. Right. <laughs> it is without a doubt. So how do you envision your legacy and, and, you know, what mark do you hope to leave on this world, man? Yeah. So, so obviously, um, I mean, obviously, you, you know, like, I mean, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is building a, uh, I guess, you, I mean, there's a lot around similar to this, building some kind of kingdom fund, you know, 10-ish million dollars, which will be able to invest in in small to medium enterprises overseas in the order of thirty dollars to $50,000, which sounds like nothing to a, an Australian or American business, but has a massive impact on a business in Calcutta or um, you know, in Kyrgyzstan and, uh, and be able to see these, you know, through that have, have a, an involvement and ownership, but be able to see these businesses flourish and, and obviously uh, pastor and guide them to build disciple making businesses while they're at mm -hmm. it. So uh, ultimately, um, and that's, you know, that's wrapped in that kind of that picture of what I call the market hope church, mm -hmm. whether it has that brand or not attached, I really don't care. And I don't really into Funny, of being a branding guy, I'm not really into brands, <laughs> particularly for churches. But um, but I think I think it's something like that. Um, but but ultimately, you know, as as a dad and a husband, you know, is is to see my kids faithfully serving the Lord, to see Rebecca get after the things that you know that God has put in her heart, mm. and she's she's you know pivoting in that way at the moment as well. Um, you know, just just the things that she has in her heart, and just being being able to really encourage that and, and nurture that. Um, and, you know, for all of them, you know, knowing that my journey was, I probably was 10 years behind because of what I believed about myself, what I thought about things. And, and so as a coach now, I can see those things and I can a deal with my own poor behavior, but then see it in other people as well. And so, so I mean, obviously the legacy at home is your most important legacy. Mm-hmm. It's so true, man. So very, yeah. very true. I mean, that's my number so, one pitch. So how does being a guest on today's podcast contribute to your mission and message? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's a great question, man. That's a, you, you should have prepped me for that. <laughs> <laughs> I almost sent them to you and I'm like, nah, I'm just going to hang out. So I got a whole so list of whole, I didn't my, even ask. So my whole mission in life is to meet the next person and see what happens, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of, it, it sounds really weird, but you know, it's like if, if, if I come into the world of somebody and leave some hope, leave some, some direction and, and some, some pointers, right? We blaze the trail. You, you can follow that trail. You're going to, you're going to mess it up. You're going to fall off the trail. You're going to, 
start blazing a bit of your own as well because you know people are stubborn stupid or just just don't know you know and uh and so i think i think you know it's as people listen to this it's like i don't get it or i don't fully understand it but but there's something about it that's like that's really cool and uh and i want to i want to be around that i want to connect with that more mm -hmm. um and you know, I'm going through a bunch of that stuff myself. I'm in one of those seasons and would love to have someone just come alongside me and guide them through it. Mm, that's good. And just be, as we'd say in Australia, just be their mate in that season. Yeah. So. so when you think about the podcast today, um, and I think you answered a little bit of this in this la in the last question, but and you think about your listeners, the people that are listening to this because they know you, what do you want them to take away from this podcast today? Um, that there's just a realness to my life, right? I mean, some there's there's a whole bunch of people that hang about me and just go, "Well, we already know you're you're a bit of a screwball," you know. Um, you're you're a pretty normal sort of fella, but um, but there's a lot of people I work with. There's there's kind of this, you know, you got this stature as a coach, or you've had these opportunities mm -hmm. in life, you've been through these things. It's like that's amazing. Your story's really cool, um, and that sort of thing. It's like. But, uh, but I'm not, I'm not anyone special. I'm called by God. I've just responded to that call sometimes in the best way I know how. And then when it's really successful, it's in the best way he knows how, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it really is a journey. I keep coming back to, you know, you know, my sign off, like enjoy the journey. It's like, there's a mm -hmm. an enjoyment. Isn't like, ha ha ha. This is fun. This is awesome. It's, it's just a security knowing that God's got your back. Um, and, and this is a journey that, that things are where they are today and they change tomorrow. Um, and so, you know, for them to know that, you know, this is, this is, this has been fun and it's been really, really tough. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, but I can, I can hand on heart. I remember going back years ago, I wanted a, I, I always said just, just a reasonably successful business, you know, um, but but ultimately I wanted a very successful marriage and and I wanted to raise kids that that were doing okay. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they liked being around us. I liked being around them, as funny as that sounds. But you know, I, I love my kids, but I also want to like my kids. And um and so it's just this whole mix of a journey in there. And so I love the person where the personal intersects with the corporate, you know, or the or the or the business. Mm-hmm. So when you look around, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's where you and I are very similar in the sense that, you know, I, I guess, although I, I coach a range of people, I do feel like my most effective is, is with men, mm -hmm. you know, but male business leaders. and mm -hmm. So, yeah. So when you start looking around and you see, uh, and just from what you've seen, do you see a, uh, uh, a growing community of individuals who are, who are wanting to make this change to live differently. And how do you want to connect with them or how do you hope to connect with them? Yeah, I, I do. Um, and again, right now, a lot of it is just as you meet them and connect, we really uh, never really built an intentional community. I think the most intentional community I've been involved in is obviously with the BAM community, the businesses, missions community, you know, through things like IBEC and so forth. Um, but uh, in terms of coming from me, um, 
you know, I just, I just want to be, I want to be in their world and just as they're sharing their story, I can hear, I can hear what God has for them and, and I can speak that into their world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I always say the most fun people to disciple the people who don't know Jesus yet, but, Mm -hmm. um, but it's, but it is very much, you know, God has a plan for everybody, whether they know him or not. And, uh, and, and if we can get more people into a space where they can activate that with God rather than without him, it's, uh, it's a much better place. Cool. Well, Hey man, we have been at this at least an hour and a half, if not a little bit. Uh, it's close to two hours. I'm looking at the clock. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so much for you doing these shorter ones, mate. Yeah, but, I know. Uh, right. I just, that, that never <laughs> happens, but I'll, before we sign off or, or do anything like that, I definitely just want to say, say thank you for, for jumping on oh, with me. God. I know it was a little bit of a last minute thing that we, we, we had, a, <laughs> we actually had a business meeting tonight and I was like, you know what? I'm not in that place. I, I don't want to talk about it. I'm glad you did. Cause I wasn't either. Um, and, <laughs> and was like, Hey, let's do something fun. And, and let me just, let, let me tell my listeners your story. Um, yeah. and so, now I just want to turn it over to you for a minute and just if there's anything you just want to kind of last minute advice, wisdom, whatever it is you just want to share real quick uh, with with your listeners and my listeners as as right before we sign off. Yeah, look, I, I think I think realize that we we all struggle with stuff. We all we all have you know challenges. I think particularly if you're a Christian, you probably live in a world where there's some element of requirement of you wearing a mask to, to maintain a certain composure or a certain thing, but, but understand that there's grace in every situation, even though it might look bad in the moment. Um, but um, I think, you know, just, just the more we can be real with each other, the more we can just seek to connect with people and, and to really bless them and to give something of ourselves away. I mean, the better the better everything's going to be and i'm not looking for a perfect world because i just don't think that's possible but but i think you know that that each one of us has a job to influence the world that we live in and uh even it's just a microcosm and uh and not try to do the heroics just just be the person that god's called you to be where he's called you to do it in the way he's called you to do it and trust him for that journey awesome that's so good well, thanks, brother. I appreciate you being here, hey, man, man, tonight. It's awesome. Awesome. Well, talking about trailblazer or being a trailblazer and getting on the path, as you know, uh, Jono and I have a leadership coaching and consulting company called The Forge Leader, where we equip businesses and men to be productive and growing enterprises that benefit the local community. 100%. Uh, look at that. Look, and drop that brand new vision statement on this, didn't I? Huh? You didn't oh, it's not was brand coming. new. That's been, that's been gestating for years, man. Yeah, I know. It's been, it has been. <laughs> but I also want to make sure uh, I send a, a big thank you out to a couple of sponsors that we have. Winmo Fitness, who does all, our, all my personal training, but also does some personal training stuff for clients that we have. And Flight Food Supplements. It's a, a supplement company that we, we partnered with to help uh, – just kind of get you on the path. I mean, those are two big things to getting on the path is, is not just getting physically or not just getting spiritually fit or getting your business fit. Getting physically fit is also very, very 100%. important part of just getting on a path, whatever that looks like for you as a mountain biker, like my, my, like Jono here, we didn't even get into ah. that by the way. Um, or, or like me who, who, who does a lot of crazy things like run Spartan race, whatever that is, whatever that looks like for you. I mean, it just, it, 
it has a positive impact on your life and then eating right definitely and, and getting the right supplements and the right stuff in your in your body definitely helps as well with that um so with that i want to say thank you for tuning in to this episode of trailblazers and if you've enjoyed this conversation be sure to subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned for more inspiring stories of men making a difference in their world and remember you too can be a trailblazer in your own way until next time keep blazing your trails Hold on, buddy. Right on. Good. I think it was good. That. It was fun. I think we needed that. I mean, I don't know what you'll do with it, but uh, but I think we needed that. What do you mean? I'm just gonna, I'm... I'm just gonna disconnect the um the lapel. Oh no, I was leave it going until we hang up. Um, it looks like.